the temperatures have increased by 1.1 degrees, we can also look at the evidence about what has caused this increase. And now it is unequivocal. There is no doubt whatsoever, unless you're a climate change denier, that human-caused emissions of carbon dioxide and other long-lived greenhouse gases have been the dominant cause. Carbon dioxide, while it cycles between the atmosphere and the oceans and the atmosphere and the land surface and plants, to remove it long-term by natural processes alone will take a thousand to 10,000 years. Uh, it's going to be an absolute honor to speak to you and uh, you know we've been sending emails back and forth but it's been uh, it's been absolutely fascinating learning about your background your career um, your your history in terms of your role in climate chi climate change climate science and as a scientific communicator and uh, obviously there's a lot to your career you've just retired from the CSIRO the chief scientific body in Australia but I think a lot of our listeners uh, coming from abroad, they may not be too familiar with uh, climate scientists in Australia specifically. So I'd love to let people know a little bit about yourself, if you could reveal a bit about your story. There's a lot of a lot to it. You know, you uh, were a part of the revered group of IPCC authors who shared a Nobel Prize with uh, with Al Gore, which was when I learned about that, that blew my mind. Um, you've worked on four out of the six IPCC reports, which is absolutely mind boggling. And then you've also helped many students, PhD, master's students and so on and so forth. So obviously there's a lot of ground to cover, but I, I wanted to give you the, the, the room to sort of tell the story, your story as you see it. Sure. And look, thank you for having me on the program, uh, Xavier, and it's a, it's a pleasure to be involved. And what I'm going to do is to start at what I think is the beginning, because I am a very typical uh, science nerd and uh, did well at university in the sorts of nerdy subjects like physics and maths, and then went into undergraduate studies at university, uh, majoring in physics and applied mathematics. But when I went to university and even in my um, high school days, I was really interested in outdoor activities and tried to spend as much of my time in, in outdoor activities. Had been involved as a Boy Scout when Boy Scouts were sort of more popular perhaps than they are now. Um, and that meant I liked camping. When I was at university, I used to go uh into outdoor activities and anything that would get me away from home and into the bush in outdoor activities like uh, bushwalking, hiking, mountain climbing, cross-country skiing, canoeing, sailing, uh, oh, and um, caving underground as well. I was doing all of those and I spent very little time in terms of weekends at home, as well as just enjoying camping in, in national parks and things like that. What I couldn't work out at that time was how my interest in outdoor activities could be linked to my studies in physics and mathematics. And in particular, it was only in the sort of final stages, having completed my undergraduate degree, that I found that in applied mathematics, there was an area of essentially applying mathematics to understanding the behavior of the oceans and the atmosphere that I became aware of the topic called geophysical fluid dynamics. And applying the, if you like, mathematical equations of behavior of fluids to understand the behavior of the atmosphere and the ocean. And I then went on to do what was the fourth year or my final undergraduate year in my honors degree in geophysical fluid dynamics or in understanding the behavior of the atmosphere and the oceans. And I ended up with a first class honors degree in that area and thought, well, gee, what I should do now is try and continue my studies. But in this understanding the behavior of the atmosphere and the oceans, and in particular, trying to become, you know, able to understand the behavior of weather and weather and clouds and climate and things like that. And in one of my 
essentially trips, bushwalking trips. I got fascinated by flow over ridges in the mountains and how clouds were forming in the upslope winds over the mountains, essentially below where I was standing on a cliff face. And to me, that was a fascinating way to understand this might be something that I could do. And it was also a way that I could explain the maths and physics that I was working on to my mother, the most important person in my life, perhaps apart from my father, but she didn't understand maths and physics, but she certainly understood the weather and the behavior of the atmosphere. And so I thought, well, I could go on and do my, if you like, postgraduate studies, was lucky enough to get a scholarship to go to the United Kingdom, worked with, and at the time, young, but to become very distinguished atmospheric scientist, now Professor Sir Brian Hoskins at the University of Reading. And he got me to work on a topic that is of great interest, which was understanding the links between climate variations in one location and in remote locations, what are called teleconnections that explain the links between El Nino and remote variations. El Nino is a phenomenon that affects the sea surface temperatures in the Pacific, but then affects climate variations all around the globe. So that's the first part of the story. And I could keep on going on on this, but what I'm gonna do now is switch to the next stage, because yes, Understanding El Nino is really important for understanding droughts and floods in Australia. El Nino leads to droughts. Its opposite phase, La Nina, leads to flooding in eastern Australia. But it also leads to climate variations in the western part of the United States or in India. Doesn't have much impact in Europe, but has major impacts on the monsoon cycle in India. But I'm going to move to how I got involved in to climate change. And we have to, if you like, fast forward from the early part of the 1980s when I got a postdoctoral position back in Australia after my PhD, then started as an early career lecturer at Monash University in Melbourne in Australia, essentially teaching mathematics, applied mathematics and geophysical fluid dynamics and climate variability. But what I found with my one of my early graduate students, one of my very first graduate students said he had to remove the long-term temperature trends in the observational data rather than just looking at climate variability. He continued to work on climate variability, but he also started to work on essentially what these trends indicated. And we did a study that was to look at what essentially are fingerprints or patterns of temperature changes in the lower atmosphere and in the stratosphere, the upper atmosphere. And what we know is that human-caused climate change or human-caused increases in greenhouse gases are expected to lead to warming in the lower atmosphere and cooling in the upper atmosphere. I was initially dubious because at that time, and this was in the mid-1980s, there had been studies that had sought to find a human-caused impact on climate change in the global average temperatures, but they couldn't. The signal was too noisy, too much year-to-year -year variability, and not a clear enough signal. So I thought by looking at fingerprints, a little bit like the TV program CSI, I could be climate scientists investigate, not, if you like, uh, criminal scientists investigate, but climate scientists investigate the same sorts of fingerprint approach. But now I was looking for the, sh the smoking gun of whether climate change due to increasing greenhouse gases would cause the pattern that was being observed. And what we found was, yes, the pattern of warming in the lower atmosphere and cooling in the upper atmosphere was clear in the observational data. We looked first in the Southern Hemisphere, had a research paper published in 1987. And then we looked in the Northern Hemisphere, found again, this is now more than 35 years ago the mm. evidence of human-caused emissions of greenhouse gases causing significant changes in the observed climate was already clear. 
couldn't be explained by increases in sunlight from the sun, couldn't be explained by stratospheric ozone depletion, couldn't be explained by natural climate variability, by decadal variations in the oceans or in the atmosphere. So the only potential cause, the only likely cause for what we were seeing was human-caused emissions of greenhouse gases. And then I started to look at, well, what does this mean for the future? And so from 1987 onwards, prior to the establishment of the Intergovernmental Panel of on Climate Change, or the IPCC, I started to get very much involved. And the more I looked, the clearer the evidence was that human-caused climate change was already affecting the climate system, that the dominant factor was, yes, these human-caused emissions of carbon dioxide, methane and nitrous oxide, that it was leading to increases in many adverse impacts on the climate system, and that unless human activity acted rapidly to reduce emissions, climate change was going to get much, much worse. And so for the next 35, 40 years, my focus has been better understanding climate change, getting involved in the international and national communication of climate change science and the impacts of climate change. But that's what I've been focusing on over the last 40 years. My last job was in working as leader of a government-funded research unit called the Earth Systems and Climate Change Hub within CSIRO, but in partnership with five universities in Australia and the Bureau of Meteorology, the National Weather Service in Australia. But that was also very much involved in communicating the risks of climate change and what we need to do to address climate change. So probably that's more than enough of the David Caroli story, and we'll touch on other things as well. No, absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you, David, for that uh, that ten minute summary, essentially, of everything that you've done. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of detail that you've omitted, but I think uh, if you would ask someone to give a ten minute summary, I think that would be an A plus, uh, uh, absolutely. So, I think uh, in in summary, over the past forty years, you've sort of been what you've been the climate change warrior in a sense for australia and also globally and you know you've you held professorship at the university of oklahoma you worked in you studied at the university of reading in the uk so you've not only been based in australia but globally and your impacts in terms of the the research articles that you've been able to generate i think you've written over 200 articles uh you know you've helped a number of students and research, your research contribution, as well as your scientific communication contribution has been profound. And I think a lot of people, a lot of listeners, if they're interested in learning a lot more about your, about your personal life in terms of, as well as your scientific research, you have a number of podcasts, which I highly recommend that are about the research that you've done. Uh, also um, talking about climate conspiracy theories and denialism, which you've also addressed. And I'd love to, I'd love to talk about that, but uh, perhaps for another day. Um, but essentially you have a whole body of work, which is incredibly impressive. And um, but that takes me to this podcast, which um, my desire was to have a unique angle, obviously, with you, Professor. You've talked about climate science your whole life. Um, and there was a recent book by one of your actual postdoctoral students named Joel Gerges. Um, and she's re recently written a, bo a book called Humanity's Moment, and it's essentially her summer her summary of the most recent IPCC report, which she was one of the lead authors. Um as well as her sort of heartfelt letter to Australians and the world. And uh, she made the, she, she, I, I started reading this over the Christmas period, which perhaps wasn't the best time to read it, but I think it was, uh, it, it was a gift in it of itself, no matter how, um, how grueling the details are. And she mentions that given humanity is now facing an existential threat of planetary proportions and scientists are the people who really know what exactly is at stake. Should the logic, should that logically include acknowledging our sense of despair, anger, grief, and frustration? Why are medical doctors praised for good bedside manner while climate scientists are dismissed as alarmist? And to me, uh, in conjunction with the rest of her book, it really helped me in, in an emotional capacity to really process what's going on rather than just keeping climate science, climate change, and all the impacts of it at an intellectual level, really pricing that on a subjective level. Um, and it also was very apparent in 
Professor Gerges's book is is the emotional toll that it takes to be a climate scientist, not only in terms of the, the amount of hours, because as you would know, Professor, working on four separate IPCC reports, it's all voluntary, as I understand it, and you're doing it outside your normal day job. So there's that physical component, but there's also the emotional component, which is constantly being confronted with data, which, uh, to put bluntly, can uh, can leave one person feeling very upset about the state of the climate, especially in the face of things like denialism, things like inaction, and so on and so forth. So that's a long way of saying that I was hoping to ask you a few questions about how you are in terms of after your career, um, and also to dig into the moral sentiments of being a climate scientist. Um, I pulled that phrase from a book of Adam Smith, which before he became a free marketeer um, and gave us uh, capitalism, which uh, a lot of climate scientists may may uh, want to take apart. Uh, also was a philosopher, and he has a book called Theory of Moral Sentiment. So I thought I'd just sort of take that phrase and investigate, Professor Carley, your life uh, and also helping people that are listening to not only process climate change on an intellectual level, but on an emotional level. Uh, how does that sound? I, I apologize if that was a bit long-winded. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it sort of ends, ended up, I think, being probably two or three questions together. But let, let me talk yeah. about my own perspective, a little bit following on from my story, but touching on that. Remember that what I talked about, and I think what is critically important, is thinking about um, some of the things that we value ourselves, what our personal values are. And I talked about my interest in the you know environment. And I certainly still value the environment. One of the problems that I discovered was that my valuing the environment highly, of course, I also value having enough food to eat and having a safe place to live and housing and transport and entertainment and family. Unfortunately, climate change puts at risk not only some of or many of the things that I value, it puts at risk many other people's high-valued interests as well. And so what I've found is that the best way for me to talk about the impacts and risks of climate change is very much to think about how people think about the things they value and then to work out or discuss with them the wide-ranging impacts of climate change, recognizing that, yes, human activity in the past has been and is still the dominant factor causing climate change, but that the best way to address it for people who are even trying to deny that human activity is impacting this is to talk with them walk them or talk with them through the story of not only my activities, but their own activities and what people have seen in terms of increases in extreme events or changes in sea level, the impact of sea level rise, and why an individual's personal experience is often impacted by large year-to-year -year variations, not the relatively small long-term trends that will lead to and are already leading to increases in extreme events like severe rainfall or increases in heat waves or increases in wildfires in many different countries. In fact, in all different countries around the world, as well as long-term sea level rise and the impacts on storm surges. So these adverse impacts, not only in terms of extreme events, but also in terms of food production, are already occurring and have been occurring for the last 30 years or more. We know we need action, and I talk about it from an emotional perspective by talking about what people value, why they value it, and then talking about what they actually want and need for a comfortable lifestyle. And many people will reply to say, well, we want the world to stay the same. Unfortunately, we can't 
reverse the clock and go back to 50 years ago or 100 years ago when there was less greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. The only way we can do that is to essentially understand what is locked in. And we know that human-caused climate change is locking in substantial further warming and substantial further increases in climate extremes, in heat waves, in flooding, in sea level rise. And unless we address them, we're going to lose many of the things that people value. And it's that understanding, mm. that emotional connection that isn't as important for me, but is critically important in essentially persuading the majority of people who already see these changes in extremes in their mm. lifetimes, why some of the climate change deniers who focus on the variability or focus on misinformation, why it's important to move away from some industries that have underpinned human mm. development, particularly yeah. the use of fossil fuels to mm. power the industrial revolution. But what we've ignored for the last 30 years or more is the adverse impacts that fossil fuels lead to associated with the release of carbon dioxide, methane and nitrous oxide into the atmosphere, and then the associated climate change. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I just to use a a quote from a book that I read last year, which you may know called The Little Prince. It's a little novella. Um, the author writes that, you know, the most beautiful things in the world cannot be seen or touched. They are felt with the heart. And even for climate deniers or anyone that may be hesitant on uh, moving action faster than uh, uh, or up to the rate that it ought to be at, uh, I think making the case that, look, there's things that we all love and uh, it's important to preserve them. And even if we don't love them, if we value them to, if we value them, it's important. I think Peter Singer makes the argument, uh, who's a ethicist, he makes the argument in terms of animal ethics that, um, in terms of animals, you don't necessarily have to love animals not to eat them. Just like you don't have to love certain races to know that it's wrong to, to do harm for, on the basis of race. And so I think understanding that, uh, understanding the subjective level of uh, how climate can impact everyone is an incredibly important mover. And like, like we were saying before, moving maybe from the head realm to the heart as Joel Gerges puts it. Um, so um, you mentioned it briefly, but I just want to touch on it, uh, touch on it in more detail. Uh, so what is the current state of the planet as reflected in the most recent climate science? And how do you personally feel about it? Yeah. Look, that's a, a really important question. And what we know now is that global average temperatures have increased about 1.1 degrees over the period since the pre-industrial revolution, essentially from relative to 1850 to 1900. Um, it's important to also recognize that there is substantial year-to-year -year variability. So when we define climate and climate change, we're talking about 20-year average periods so that the longer-term trends in the climate can be separated from the year-to-year -year variations. And we know that much of the year-to-year -year variations is due to exchange of heat between the oceans and the atmosphere, like El Nino events that I was talking about earlier. But having said that the temperatures have increased by 1.1 degrees, we can also look at the evidence about what has caused this increase. And now it is unequivocal. There is no doubt whatsoever, unless you're a climate change denier, that human-caused emissions of carbon dioxide and other long-lived greenhouse gases have been the dominant cause. And that, in fact, carbon dioxide concentrations have grown nearly doubled from pre-industrial times when the concentrations were only 280 parts per million, and now they're over 400 parts per million and rapidly increasing. And when we also include the impact of methane and nitrous oxide and chlorofluorocarbons, the other human-caused emissions of other long-lived greenhouse gases, the concentrations 
If they were going to double from 280, they'd be 560. Well, actually, they're already more than 510 parts per million of what's called carbon dioxide equivalent, the warming influence of all the greenhouse gases. What does that mean we have to do? Well, unfortunately, we also know that carbon dioxide, while it cycles between the atmosphere and the oceans and the atmosphere and the land surface and plants, to remove it long term by natural processes alone will take a thousand to ten thousand years to remove 90% of what we've added. And that means that this is a long term problem. And that means that every ton of additional carbon dioxide added into the atmosphere will add to global warming. So every time we burn fossil fuels, every time we drive in a car, we fly in an aeroplane, uh, generate electricity from uh, burning coal or natural gas, every time we do that, it will cause more warming. Now, what we've got to be aware of is that there are solutions, and I won't go into those now, but what does it mean we have to do? It means that we've actually got lots of warming locked into the system already. We know that almost regardless of what we do over the next 10 to 20 years, temperatures will continue to warm to go through the one and a half degree, if you like, threshold that was considered by all the countries around the world to be the limit of global warming to avoid dangerous human-caused climate change. Now, in fact, we've already experienced dangerous human-caused climate change. But one and a half degrees was considered to be a achievable limit for warming. Well, we will race through one and a half degrees in global temperatures in the 2030s, almost regardless of any emission reduction, we will likely hit two degrees of global warming in the 2050s. And the only way that we will be able to limit global warming to below two degrees is by rapid emission reductions, not in the 2050s, rapid emission reductions between now and 2050, so that carbon dioxide emissions, which is the major driver of global warming, go to zero by 2050. And it's only then if we can get carbon or global emissions of carbon dioxide down to zero from human activities, it's only then that temperatures will stabilize and potentially start to cool down back to one and a half degrees. If we can suck out enough carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, we will then potentially be able to return the global temperature to only one and a half degrees. And that's the long-term target. Mm. But what we have to do is not act tomorrow. We need to act yesterday. Unfortunately, a number of countries have recognized that greenhouse gas emissions are critically, sorry, greenhouse gas emission reductions are critical to stabilizing temperatures in the atmosphere. And so action has been agreed by all countries around the world to limit global warming to well below two degrees and to try to achieve warming to be limited at only one and a half degrees by the end of this century, by 2100. Now, there was, if you like, a meeting of all the governments around the world to assess progress on climate change. And these are the conferences of parties of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. The last one was the 27th one of these meetings. It wasn't considered a great success because there is a major emissions gap between what countries have committed to already and what the likely warming level will be. And with current commitments and the commitments that have been made for the next 30 and 50 years, unfortunately, the best estimate is global warming will substantially exceed two degrees by 2100, and we'll most likely get to nearly three degrees. And the planet itself and human civilizations have never seen three degrees of global warming in the last 100,000 years. So we know that 
three degrees of global warming will mean a very different planet for all human society. And that's the disastrous aspect. I know the solutions are possible. That makes me feel optimistic. I also know that the problem of climate change and its impacts will get much worse before it gets much better. And that's the depressing part. And so on the one hand, I know that we can fix the problem. On the other hand, I know what we, human society, is working too slowly to address this and much stronger action is needed. I think I'll just take a second to sort of absorb all of that information, which you've beautifully summarized. What comes to mind for me is that if you've been a climate scientist, David, for you know about 40 years, you've been seeing the evidence alongside of the rest of your colleagues for a number of decades get worse and worse. And that's obviously neglecting all the great things that have happened, the great solutions that have been proposed, or the great developments that have meant that we can be hopeful in the future. But nevertheless, I can imagine that the toll it has taken on you and your colleagues uh, to to be vigilant, to be up to date with the most uh, with the best peer reviewed data, and yet it'd be so grim. How do you how do you feel about sort of how things have progressed or declined over the past few decades, and how have you and your colleagues been able to sort of keep above water, so to speak? Yeah. Look, that's that's a really good question again, because yes, I have been involved in this, and I'm going to say business, but it's not business, this area of scientific study, as well as area of scientific communication for probably 30 years now. I started off thinking that it was enough to do climate change science and publish the reports and do international assessments and provide information, and it would be clear that greater action was needed. But that was rather naive because there are substantial vested interests who are locked into the historical greenhouse gas emission industries, coal mining, oil mining, Um, natural gas extraction, the use of those in existing technologies, the vested interests around fossil fuel industries and the use of fossil fuels across our whole economy don't want to change. And in fact, it is critically important to recognize that for many businesses, Their objective is to maximize their profits and the profits and returns for their shareholders. And so why would they want to change into other energy sources or other industries when the shareholders want to see the maximum return from their current investments? They don't want to change. And so fossil fuel industries and certain media outlets have focused on avoiding change, on maximizing current fossil fuel industries and have sought to undermine the arguments in the science essentially to promote climate change denial arguments so that they can essentially maximize the returns, maximize the profits from the fossil fuel industries. That's what essentially corporate governance requirements are. You need to maximize the profits for the return on the industry. You need to essentially follow a capitalist model of maximizing return. Now, that is important in the short term, but avoids the long-term problems that climate change is going to impose on natural environments, human society, and all of ecosystems, and will have impact on agriculture and on all the other areas. And now many business regulators, government regulators for businesses, are requiring that 
annual reports take into account how these companies are going to address climate change. So how has it affected me? I've seen lots of changes in government in Australia, in the United States, and in the United Kingdom, vacillating between stronger and weaker climate change action. And some of the best examples come from the United States, as well as in Australia, where in the United States, uh, President Clinton, President Obama, all wanted stronger climate change action. But the Republican um, how would I say, uh, politicians, and particularly President Trump, were supporters of climate change denial or climate change misinformation. The same exists in Australia, where the Australian Labor Party governments have sought to implement stronger legislation around climate change emission reduction and the opposition parties at present, but the previous government essentially wanted to stop any emission reductions and to continue to support coal mining and fossil fuel extraction in Australia. So there's a dilemma. People are often more receptive to understanding the misinformation because it's simple to say that it's easy to keep on doing what we've been doing for a long time, but the adverse impacts of that often get hidden in that misinformation. So how do I feel? Look, again, I end up relying on my relatively positive attitude. I usually have a smile on my face and I find that having a smile on my face and a smile in my heart allows me to be more positive about things than essentially focusing on the negative aspects. And so I try to have a positive attitude. I have always tried to focus on the positive things and it allows me to continue on and survive the ups and downs hmm recognizing that in practice, many people frame things based on their own perceptions of reality. I don't support Donald Trump's perspective on reality because he lives in an alternate reality which is far-fetched far from the reality that I see in the IPCC reports and my observations. However, it's clear that the only way that Donald Trump could be sane is if his reality is entirely consistent with him wanting to destroy the IPCC. I am pleased to say that Donald Trump has a very, very small group of strong supporters and fortunately, within Australia and many other parts of the world, climate change action is more strongly supported by larger fractions of the population. And there is only a very, very small fraction of the global population or the Australian population that don't accept that climate change is happening and that most of it is due to human-caused emissions of greenhouse gases, due to human activity. Mm. I just want to take another moment to pause because you're able to convey so much. I, I do also think of myself as someone that's pretty optimistic and um, I, I'm i not too sure where it comes from. I wonder if that's the same with you. It's sort of just a innate disposition towards being more optimistic. Um, and yet I, I, when learning and you know i think a lot of younger people have reported this and you know there's now terms like eco anxiety eco depression which sort of reflect young people as well as you know many older people that are like yourself that are scientists and have been in the field for a very long time an utter white fury for the lack or not even the lack but the the failure to reflect science in reality and I think COVID was a very good case study outside of climate change to sort of demonstrate that. Um, 
and and yet I, I felt that what you know, for example, Joelle's book after sort of hearing people like her share her, I guess, desperation in times of of hardship. It it helped me, uh, I guess, mourn the loss of what could have been. I don't know if, if I don't know if that even makes sense to you, but uh, to to me, it's almost like mourning something that won't happen in the present, at least. You know, I think Naomi Klein mentions in her book, "This Changes Everything," that if two percent of emissions were reduced every year from nineteen nineties onwards, we would we would be in a pretty good situation, and two percent is nothing. Um, and that's obviously not the case, but uh, I sort of say all of this, uh, to invite people and give pe- people permission to feel, you know, pretty, pretty bad about this whole situation. And yet at the same time, I'm very optimistic, like you said, and I think I like to keep a smile on my face as well, because, um, I think despite despite how difficult it is in every generation, there's their challenges. Uh, every, every group of people have to fight some sort of injustice and unequivocally, unequivocally people rise above it and are able to join hands and, and, uh, carry out what they, what they, uh, strove to carry out. Uh, I don't know if you have any comments there, but I mean, I, I do have some comments and look, it's, it's important to recognize that while majority of people and the average person will strive hard to get above this, there are actually very, very large fractions of less able individuals mm. and less able communities, the poor people, disadvantaged peoples in developing countries around the world who are going to be the most affected by human-caused climate change and yet are the least contributors to human-caused mm. climate change and the least able to adapt to and respond to the impacts. And so it's the poor, the disadvantaged, the underdeveloped communities in developed countries as well as in developing countries that are all Mm. going to be the worst hit. And really it's critically important that it's not that we need to look after ourselves. We need to look after the poor, the disadvantaged and the less able to cope Mm. much more. And that is why one of the conclusions of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change is that developed countries need to take the lead in combating climate change because they're the rich. They've already mm. used emissions to for the Industrial Revolution. What we need now to do mm. is to provide renewable energy solutions for developing countries that avoid the use of coal, oil, and fossil gas and go into the renewable energy revolution that allow us to use the same things that were used to make sure that essentially wire telephones aren't used in developing countries all around the world, Mm. that in fact it's the mobile phone or cell phone era that has essentially jumped over the need for wired Mm. telephones, that we can use wireless phones to communicate essentially. And what we need is that revolution in renewable energy as well. Mm. But I think there's also another critically important aspect, and that is that a number of the fossil fuel, if you like, development country companies have argued that it's the individuals who should be responsible for the burning of coal Mm. or the burning of petrol or the burning of natural gas, arguing that it's the companies that should, sorry, it's not the company's responsibility, it's the individuals because, Mm. but that's what I argue is the drug dealer's argument. (laughs) Because if they weren't providing an addictive product like coal-generated electricity to power 
essentially homes and industries or petrol to power cars or diesel or oil to power um, trucks and mm. trains and ships or avgas to power aeroplanes, if we weren't locked into that addictive use of fossil fuels, we'd be able to switch. Mm. But that addiction has been promoted by the industries to keep people hooked onto that addiction. And so we need to recognize, yes, it is our responsibility, but we need to break that addiction and Mm. government regulation that limits that addiction in the same way that the addiction to tobacco was essentially banned in many countries because of health reasons. We know that the addiction to fossil fuels and the emissions of greenhouse gases is causing major environmental impacts, but it's also causing Mm. major human health impacts as well, associated with a range of different spreading tropical diseases Mm. and deaths from heat waves and deaths from flooding. We know that there are this addiction to fossil fuels needs to be broken. Mm, Absolutely. And I think you touched on a really critical point, which is I think, uh, what fossil fuel companies have done a very good job at is pivoting the responsibility. And I think the most salient example is British British Petroleum coming up with the term carbon footprint to essentially put the onus of responsibility of climate change onto the individual. And we'll be interviewing a Professor Matt Huber next week from Syracuse University. He's just written a book called Climate Change's Class Warfare, where he points out rightfully that... Uh, you know, if you're a climate change executive, but you bike to work, you're a vegan and do all those sorts of things versus a regular everyday class worker, but you know, you have a diesel car, the the person who's driving the diesel car is not worse, is not, is not a, a bigger threat uh, in terms of the scale of climate change that they're contributing to, to the fossil fuel worker, because the fossil fuel worker has a direct tie to essentially the infrastructure that is responsible for climate change. And so it is really crucial to put our scope in the right place, so to speak, and say, is it? Re- it's not necessarily, uh, I guess, an effective strategy to focus all the responsibility on the people, but to look at the bigger picture and look at, at a systems point of view or look at systems thinking. And that's, that's absolutely correct. But it's also another way to think about this is the way that emissions are broken up between what are called local or domestic emissions in a country, and those are called scope one and scope two emissions. And scope three emissions are the emissions associated with those activities, but that may take place remotely. Like Mm. when you buy a product, they were the emissions that were used to generate the product that you're buying. Now, within Australia, we have roughly 500 million tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions across carbon dioxide, methane and nitrous oxide, including scope one and scope two emissions and scope three emissions that occur within Australia. But Australia is one of the biggest exporters of coal and fossil gas in the world. And when those emissions associated with burning of Australian coal or burning of Australian fossil gas in other countries, like in India or in China or in Japan, it trebles Australian emissions. Mm. Australia's emissions associated with the scope three export are three times as big. And it makes Australia much, much more important in its contributions to global warming when we take into account the role of Australian coal and Mm. Australian fossil gas in warming up the planet, even though that's Mm. being burnt by some in some other country. And yet that Mm. is not reported as part of Australia's domestic emissions. Australia Mm. has a target for reducing its emissions 
domestic emissions by 43 percent by 2030 and going to net zero emissions by 2050. But it has no legislation and no requirements for phasing out mining of coal mm. or extraction of fossil gas in Australia and then exporting that overseas. And so mm. Australia is only looking at one very small part of what is a much bigger problem. And it applies just as much in the United States, where the United States reports only on its domestic emissions, but does not report on its emissions associated with export of oil or mm. of gas mm. or of um, uh, coal. But most of the coal in the United States is burnt in the United States. Most of the gas extracted in the United States is used in the United States. So it's less of a difference than what exists in Australia. Mm. As I mentioned, Australia is a much bigger contributor mm. relative to its share of the world's population. Mm, absolutely. And I, you, you touch on that very subtle nuance that just simply looking at a country's carbon emissions and then comparing to maybe a developing country like China is not a straightforward thing just because if we export all of our manufacturing, for example, if we were to take that back, what would our carbon emissions per capita be? It'd be a very, very different story. Um, and I want, to, I want to bring us back very quickly to the feelings realm because I can feel myself drifting to the intellectual realm. Doing things like podcasts, for example, or even reading literature, uh, playing music, um, engaging in life in leisurely ways. I suppose these are th these are things that everyone ought to do because of, for many reasons, but just for the value in and of itself. And yet, obviously, as a climate scientist, I can imagine you can have this sort of push and pull where am I? you're always questioning whether you're making the best use of your time. Uh, and I wonder how has that been for you? Because for me as coming across climate research, I'm always thinking I need to be doing something right now <laughs> to help it help in any way I can. Uh, and I'm just, you know, I'm just some random yeah. student. Um, but what about you, professor? How's yeah. that been? Well, let me say that I think that you're doing a very useful job in seeking to try to enhance the communication from a range of experts in climate change through your podcasts to a broader audience. And even though the audience is not in the uh, thousands, it is a resource that can be expanded. And I think that is really important. But look, I, I do have my times when I switch off, when I do other things and now that I am retired, yes, I like to do some travel and to get to some of my favorite places to enjoy the swimming pool that we've got in our backyard. And more particularly, now that I'm retired, one of the, my favorite things is to take my granddaughter, who's in grade one, or was in grade one in primary school mm. in the last academic year, to take her to school every morning because both her parents have to start work at or leave for work at eight o'clock in the morning. Whereas I can go to their home, not far from where we live, often walking or short driving the car, read with my granddaughter or get her to read her reader to me in the morning and then take her to school. I don't have to pick her up in the afternoon, but that once a day, getting the experience of her reading with me and taking her to school and watching her grow and learn is a really valuable and pleasurable thing for me. It's also great to, you know, go to visit nat nat um, national parks, but also the the areas where we live now, I, you know, I go for a walk, take our dogs for a walk through parkland and through forested areas and around a lake as much as I can. And so my focus is trying to pick areas that I enjoy, the natural environment that I talked about right at the very beginning, why I value those sorts of spaces. And we 
chose to move our house, well, move where we live into a house that has some of these things and to live locally so that we can get to where our daughter, son-in-law and three grandchildren live so that they can spend time with us. So, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to do is to, you know, not only think locally, but live locally as well as act globally. And the act globally, I should talk about it as well, because mm -hmm. one of the other things that I really have found important and where I can use my skills is that within Australia, and in fact, in within many countries around the world, including the United States and Europe and in China, many of the climate scientists are employed in government-funded agencies. And they're not allowed to comment on government policies. Mm. I was employed in a government agency between 2018 and the end of 2022, and I couldn't, sorry, 2018 and the end of 2021, I couldn't comment on Australian government public policy. One advantage that I have now, having retired, is that I can use my expertise across a wide range of areas of climate science to be involved in climate change litigation cases, legal mm. cases that are seeking to essentially require the Australian government to increase its greenhouse gas emission reductions, to demonstrate that they're not doing enough, that climate change is affecting natural ecosystems across Australia, that climate change is affecting people, and that climate change is affecting Indigenous communities all across Australia. And mm. I'm involved in three separate legal cases. Wow for which I'm an expert witness. I can have an impact there as much and more so than I can have an impact by reducing my own greenhouse gas emissions. But yes, I have reduced my greenhouse gas emissions to as close as possible to zero by having a very, very low emission vehicle. I haven't got an electric car yet. We have got zero emissions from all our electricity. We've got solar panels on our roof and we offset all the emissions from air travel that we do. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. I mean, I mean, first of all, the, the, your ability to sort of compartmentalize and sort of say, I'm using my time for leisure and this is what I'm going to be spending time and then on the other hand, uh, fighting legal cases against uh, the big bad, the big baddies, <laughs> which is incredibly commendable and uh, very inspirational, I must say. Uh, and I would li like to thank you for your efforts in contributions towards uh, the good fight, so to speak, as uh, people refer to it. Uh, closing up on a few questions, perhaps a bit more reflective questions. There's a uh, one of the classic high school books that uh, many are required to read is uh, The Catcher in the Rye. And uh, with the main character, who's a very uh, cynical sort of young adolescent who's sort of going through life, says you know, certain things, they should stay the way they are. You ought to be able to stick them in one of those big glass cases and just leave them alone. Uh, I'm wondering, what would you stick under that big glass case if you could have the chance to sort of capture something in time and keep it the way it is uh, in perpetuity. Yeah. Um, so there are two things that I would keep in that sort of <laughs> very big glass case. Uh, one is a very important land-based ecosystem, which is essentially the Australian alpine areas uh, which are being dramatically adversely affected by climate change-related declines in snow cover, climate change-related temperature impacts, climate change-related increases in bushfires. The only problem is they're pretty big. <laughs> and so it's a very large area. But there's another one, and that's unfortunately even bigger. We need a glass case which is big enough to encompass the whole of the Australian Great Barrier Reef because based on current climate change projected until 2050, the Great Barrier Reef is doomed and it will have effectively 
um, coral bleaching events every year in the 2040s and 2050s, and the corals will all die, or almost all the corals will die. We've gone to having coral bleaching episodes every two or three years. We will go to having them every year, and all the corals will die unless we can limit global warming to one and a half degrees. And even then, much of the Great Barrier Reef will be permanently changed because of human-caused mm. climate change. Those are the two natural ecosystems that I value most. They don't include any major food production systems. They don't include any major, um, if you like, cities. But in terms of things that I would like to avoid, I think we can cope with society managing their own air conditioning we can't air condition the Australian alpine areas or the Great Barrier Reef unless we reduce greenhouse gas emissions yesterday. Mm, absolutely. I'm sure there's a lot of young people listening because that's uh, predominantly my audience. Um, and I think throughout the throughout uh, the conversation, people are probably wondering, well, you know, I'm, I'm an artist. I don't know what my contributions can be, or I'm a musician, or you know, I'm just a, I'm just a, a university student, or perhaps even people that are older that are within already working full time. They're wondering, you know, I'm working in a sales job. You know, I, how can I really contribute? And obviously, there's that production side that is requires infrastructure change, that requires legislative change, which, uh, which is very important. But for those who are wondering on the individual level, what they can do. How can we help protect the alpine forest or how can we help protect the Great Barrier Reef? How can we add value and help action for climate? Yeah, look, it's really important, I think, to remember that people think in different ways and that science is not always the best way to think about and to encourage people to get involved. In fact, art and literature and music have often been as important or more important in getting people involved in mass actions to solve problems, whether it's the mass, if you like, actions uh, demonstrations against the Vietnam War, or whether it's the mass actions to stop slavery or to stop racism, or now the mass actions by young people in the school's strike for climate. Greta Thunberg is a hero of mine for what she's been able to do with simple phrases. But it's clear that communication through art, communication through music, communication through uh, stories are really, really important. And in fact, I was involved uh, in an art exhibition that is still going on in Frankston in Melbourne at the Frankston Art Centre that finishes uh, towards the end of January, on the 24th of January. So there are a range of opportunities that I've tried to seize to broaden the communication channels that I've used. But what can people do? Well, look, the most important thing is to think about your lifestyle, and the ways that you can contribute. You can contribute in many different diverse ways. The first way is to have an impact on the governments, local government, regional government, and national government by voting for the policies and actions that will most rapidly address climate change. Second thing you could do is talk to your parents or talk to your friends about why you think that climate change is a key issue and then how their investments, whether it's their jobs, their banking or their retirement investments are almost certainly somewhat invested 
in the existing fossil fuel related industries and why they need to move into more sustainable industries. And those will help provide a much better sustainable society and a sustainable environment for all of us. Brilliant. Uh, to, to end on a final question, uh, David, there's a question that we ask all of our guests and the name of our podcast is called Utopias Now um, with visions of, of, uh, of utopias being, I guess, created by each and every guest. So we ask it to every, every guest and they all sort of come up with their own sort of utopia. And I'm wondering, uh, what does your utopia look like, David, in, in as many or as little words as, as you would like? What would it look like? Look, utopia is a world for me in which the only use of fossil fuel material is in producing pharmaceuticals for drugs and not being used for plastics or fuel or energy, anything at all. It is a world in which global temperatures have cooled by half a degree relative to present days and for which natural ecosystems have started to regrow, for which poverty has dramatically declined for which rich people and rich countries in the world are committing much larger fractions of their so-called gross domestic product into helping developing countries and that the global happiness index is recognized as the most important global index than the so-called growth metric of the gross domestic product. We need to have an increasing global happiness index and a stable or declining gross domestic product. Brilliant. Well, I think that uh, <laughs> I think that's a perfect way to sum up our conversation, David. There's so many things I want to talk to you about you more to continue. Perhaps we can talk about that in another time. Uh, but if anyone is really interested in getting to know you a bit more, where can they find you? Is there anything you would like to, to share or anything you'd like to promote for people to look into more? Uh, look, I think what we'll do is I'll provide you with a few links that people can look at or view. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll make available my uh, uh, email address, uh, but I exist uh, on uh, LinkedIn as, as a member on LinkedIn and we'll happy to, to sort of communicate or share with people on, on LinkedIn or mm. through emails. But I also have to be aware that in terms of communication, I can't always commit to responding really quickly to emails mm. <laughs> or LinkedIn messages. Absolutely. Well, again, thank you again, Professor Crowley. It was a great pleasure to speak with you, a great honor, and I wish you uh, the best of luck uh, in the future. Sure. It's a, been a pleasure to be involved with this. <laughs>